Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, he called, to the, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I, am, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean, li- unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs on the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning asking for your kindness, that you would use your word to strengthen us um, in the faith, that you would, um, Holy Spirit, come and teach us and illuminate our minds and our hearts to see and understand the goodness of Jesus, and um, we would see and understand your glory. Only you can do these things, and so we pray that you would come now in power. God, I pray for myself, that you would come and speak through me. Um, every pastor preacher is always desperate for your presence. There's, there's literally nothing we can say or do without you. And so we pr- I pray that you would come and speak through me as well and that you would teach all of us, including myself, um, how to better see your glory and what that means for us in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, the last three weeks we've been going through community mission care, but I thought care, considered this... If you, if you like, you know, mental pictures, consider this sermon to kind of be the umbrella over all three. So when we think about community mission and care, all of those should be done for the glory of God. This is the big picture sermon that goes over all of them. Namely, that we should do everything for the glory of God. So we don't just do community mission and care just to be nice. We don't do community mission and care because it could be a strategy that makes our church grow. Um, Instead, we do community mission and care not just to be helpful, but instead primarily we do it to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or do community mission and care or whatever you do, do everything ultimately for the glory of God. Now, when you hear that, you probably heard it several times, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, um, whether you eat or drink, if there's not anything that's maybe more mundane that you'll do every single day, it's eating and drinking, whether it's in a group or whether you're by yourself in your car, right, at a, the, in a parking lot because you've got to hurry to your next job or whatever. But the point is, if God would want us to do something that's so mundanely done every single day to the glory of God, well, certainly he wants everything in our life to be done to the glory of God. And so this means every time you get together and eat with someone in the church, do it to the glory of God. This means every time you get together in community group, to unite your hearts together in community, you do it for primarily the glory of God. Not for you, not for niceness, not for helpfulness, not for church strategy, but for the glory of God. This means every time you make a meal and bring it to someone in the church or outside of the church to care for them and love for them and pray for them, you do it not because it's a good thing to do and not just because they might be hungry, but ultimately you do it for the glory of God. 
Every time you meet someone's physical need uh, by taking them to the hospital or, or whatever, um, telling them about Christ and his atoning work for them on the cross and what trusting in them can do, you do it primarily and ultimately for the glory of God, even secondarily is their salvation, which is huge. I'm not d- discounting that or minimizing that at all. Everything that we do primarily, our maximum aim in everything is the glory of God. That's why we start with Remedy Church exists to glorify God by. So you might wonder what that means. What does that mean? Um, I'm thankful for this man named John Piper who gives us a nice little understanding of glory. And this is what he says. Definition. Glorifying means feeling, thinking, and acting. So not just thinking and acting, um, but for all of us uh, right brain theologians that like to read, he also means feeling. Feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. That's a lot. I'll read it again. It means feeling, thinking, and acting. It's literally everything that you do in ways that reflect God's greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence to all the people around you of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes. Think of all of his attributes, the communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable and incommunicable just means like things we have in common with him, like love, things we don't have in common with him, like perfection. We have things that we can do that he can do, and we, we have things that we can never do like him. All of his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty that he has and all of his manifold perfections. So this just means that feeling every feel that you have in your life, uh, that's made glory of God. Every feeling you have should be done to the glory of God. This means that every thought you think in your life should be done to the glory of God. Every action that you take in your life should be done to the glory of God. Every single one of them. The goal is let this bring glory to God. So when you do this, you give evidence to everybody around you. You you scream even without saying words that God is great. God is the most supreme being in the world and he's worthy of all of our glory. And so... This is what we want to point people to, that he is all-satisfying, as Piper would say. Now, the Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? My kids are watching. What is the chief end of man? Yell it. Very good. They know what it is. We go through it all the time. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man just means, what, what are you here for? Why are you here? You're here primarily to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I like Piper's little twist where to glorify God by enjoying him forever. When we enjoy him, we actually give him more glory. That's why he's famous for saying God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or to say it another way, the the happier you are in God and in God alone, the more glory he receives. The less your affections are tempted by the world, but instead pointed to God, the more God is glorified. And this is the main reason you and I have been created, is for the glory of God. And so what I want to today, do today is talk about glory. Now, um, we know that since this is a truth, that everything that God does is for his glory, and it's our duty and privilege to be able to put on display this glory or to point people to glory or to make sure that all that we think and all that we feel and all that we do is to point to his glory. But sometimes, 
sometimes when we think, when we feel, and when we do, doesn't show the glory of God. Sometimes as we're going through life, we don't do this perfectly. Romans 7, we still have sin working itself out in us. But why? Why is it that's going on? Why is it that that's going on? It's because we have competing glories or lesser glories competing for things in our lives. There's a theologian from a while back called Soren Kierkegaard, and he talks about this little parable that helps us understand competing glories. This is what he says. Um, We're like people who ride in our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God. We should stop. Now, just I know that we live where there's street lights and everything all over the place, and so it's so difficult to even think about riding in a carriage and actually seeing a billion stars at night. So just take yourself back 200 years ago. I know you didn't, we've seen movies maybe, I don't know. Just think about the fact that you've, you've, you're outside and if you were to walk outside here and it was dark right at night, you would actually see a bunch of stars, okay? So it's not like the city where we can't see anything. This is what he says. We're like people that ride in our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God. But above us on either side of the carriage seat burns a gas lantern right, right above us, kind of so we can't see the sky. As long as our heads are surrounded by this artificial light, the sky overhead is empty of glory. But if some gracious wind of the Holy Spirit would blow our little earthly lights, our gas lanterns off, and the darkness comes, then God's heavens then are filled with stars. Someday God will blow and turn every competing glory and make his holiness known in awesome splendor to every humble creature. Which means the competing glories are the little gas lanterns all around, keeping us from seeing the greater glory, namely God's glory. We have those little competing glories in our lives all the time, keeping us from seeing the ultimate glory. We're fraught with gas lanterns or, or lesser glories that keep us from seeing the beauty and majesty of God. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the paths of righteousness. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So just, just think with me. I, I don't even want to give examples so that you can say, Well, then no, I'm not, that's not me. I don't have that lesser glory. So just think here. What are the lesser glories in your life that keep you from seeing the glory of God? What are those things around you, the gas lanterns that need to be cut off as often as possible, sometimes they have to be there, right? Um, children sometimes can be, in a respect, lesser glories. You know, we'll, they're, they're blessings from the Lord. We, we love them, right? But sometimes the menial tasks that children acquire throughout the day, um, you can think, ca- cause you to not see the, the, the ultimate glory. It can still be a greater glory because the Lord gave you this. Think, of, think about where children come from and the design of them and everything and the gl- glory that they how often they reveal to you how, just how sanctified you need to be, right? All these things are actually amazingly um, pointing us to the ultimate glory. So how do we turn off these competing glories? How do we turn them off? The way that we do that ultimately is to look at the greater glory. To with all the intensity we have and all that we can muster is to look at the greatest glory ever, namely Jesus. And as we do that, um, it helps us to turn off the competing glory. So my goal for the rest of the sermon is to take a journey with you through Isaiah 6, this greater glory in the sky. And I pray that as we do it, we transfix our minds, we transfix our eyes on the greatest glory of all, namely Christ, and that all other glories would melt away and we would see the fullness of joy that he offers um, to us. And so we're going to go to Isaiah 6 and look at the glimpses of God's glory. So if you look at verse 1, Glimpses, you can go ahead to the next one. It, oh, 
God is alive. I already gave it away. Glimpses of God's glory. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Stop there. So God is alive. So it starts with, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah, if you remember, um, Uzziah was uh, 16 years old when he became king. He was one of the good ones. There's a few of them, right? Um, he, he reigned for 52 years. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and God blessed him. And you know what happened to King Uzziah? He died. 52 years. I mean, just think, that's basically one of our entire lifetimes. All you know is how awesome our King Uzziah is. But you know what he did? He died. The turnover rate in any kind of leadership, 100%. Except for God. No turnover there. He rules and reigns always. Starting now and about every uh, 100 years, 5 billion people die all the time. God never dies. God is alive, always. So one of the greater glories that we can see is that he has been and he always will be alive. He has, he has no beginning and he depends on nothing for his existence. Every single thing that competes for us to think is awesome dies, but our God never dies. Uzziah is dead, but God continues to live on. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God was the living God whenever the universe began, and he was the living God throughout all human history, and he will be the living God trillions of years from now. So the first glimpse of God's glory is that God is alive. So therefore, we should worship a God that's always alive. We should let that just amaze us. We die, everybody dies, but not God. We should glory in this. Now, um, I'm going to take one little excerpt it still applies, but it won't be on the screen here. But there's one little thing that he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, he says this, I saw the Lord. Just think about this for a second. He literally says, I saw the Lord. Isaiah goes into the temple, and the Lord just blesses him beyond recognition. He says, I'm going to let you see the Lord at this particular time. This is amazing. He saw Jesus. This is 700 years before Jesus was born. Um, John chapter 12, verse 41 speaks of where Isaiah saw him. And I think this is the pre-incarnate word that Isaiah sees. So when we talk about the, the train filling the robe, this is Christ himself seated on the throne that he sees. John 12, 41 talks about where Isaiah saw. And I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah saw Jesus, which is unbelievable. It's pretty amazing. Ray Ortland says it this way, Isaiah was worshiping in the temple one day when for the very first time his vision was lifted far beyond the familiar surroundings of the temple into the presence of God himself. The temple in Jerusalem represented the rule of God coming down to us. But on this day for Isaiah, the earthly symbol merged into the heaven reality, which is amazing. The heavenly reality as the earthly king lay dying Uzziah, the true sovereign, was reigning and holding court, and Isaiah saw it. Just stop for a second and consider that. Isaiah saw the Lord. That's pretty awesome. Now, back to the text. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then it says, sitting upon a throne. Sitting upon a throne. That points us to this in the glimpses of God's glory. Number two, you can put it up. God is authoritative. I know that's two A's in a row. 
I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, just in your stance. But anyway, God is authoritative. He's authoritative. It says he's sitting upon a throne. There's no vision in, in the Bible ever of any time where when, when we see the throne room where God's running around doing menial tasks like making PBJs or, or nervous or fighting a war. There's only one other time where he's not sitting. It's when Stephen dies and he's standing, right? But other than that, every time we have a glimpse into heaven at any point whatsoever, what is God doing? Sitting on a throne. Sitting on a throne. And what does that mean? It means he sits. There's no fighting to be done. Everything that he, that's going on, he's in total control of. He's all authoritative. He's sitting on a throne. All is at peace and all is in his control. He is totally authoritative. The throne represents his right to rule the world. When we see the throne room of God, it means he has all right to rule the world. This means we don't give God authority over in our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. God is all authoritative. All authority goes to him. It's complete foolishness to think that we have um, any kind of rights to where we can call God into question what he's doing. He's totally authoritative. He can do anything he pleases. And it's always good. That's later. So few things are more humbling um, and few things give us a sense of the raw majesty of God than we see that God is utterly authoritative. Utterly. He sits on the throne. He does not stand. He doesn't have to run around and get things done. He's always in control and all things are always at peace with him. How does Jesus start the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. He is in complete authority. So we should glory in this all-encompassing authority that our God has. He's in total authority over all things. That should cause us to glory in this. That's number two. Number three. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. So this means God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's high and lifted up, omnipotent. The throne of his authority um, is not one among many. He's not just one king sitting on, like a bunch of other kings, sitting on a, on a throne like a bunch of other people. No. Throne high and lifted up. That means that God's throne is higher than any other throne there is. It signifies God's superior power above any and all other kings ever. That's why we call him the king of kings. Capital K on the first one. Lower K on the rest, right? Because he exercises all of his authority and there's no opposing authority that will ever nullify any decree that King Jesus has. King Jesus makes a decree. Somebody else says something in opposition. Doesn't matter. Because anything that he says is what matters. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and, all, and I will accomplish all things to my purpose. This means... That he is all-powerful. And indifference to his omnipotence and indifference to his all-powerfulness simply means that we have not seen it for what all it's worth. If we're like, yeah, all-powerful, take it or leave it, no big deal to me. This means we haven't fully even come close to grasping he's all-powerful. There is no such thing as indifference before an all-powerful God. And that means since he's all-powerful and we're his sons and daughters... That we have amazing refuge underneath his wings. God is a refuge for all of us where we have supreme joy. And we can find um, 
unbelievable refuge in him. So we should glory in our God who's totally powerful in every way. And we should bow down in absolute sheer wonder that our God can literally do all that he desires. And it's always good because he's God. It says this, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And it says this, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. That brings us to number four. God's beauty is stunning. The train of his robe filled the temple. I had the privilege of doing a uh, wedding yesterday. So when you, you go to weddings, it was wet. It was outside. We all uh, brought our umbrellas. Floated in, floated out. No, but it, it, was, it rained the whole time. I have a little clear umbrella. It's different looking. So, um, so while I was there, you know, whenever you're at weddings, you know the idea. Brides have dresses, right? And brides' dresses, they have the train. And this is meant to, to show us the beauty of the bride. It's, to, it's meant to draw us to the, uh, what they're wearing to see the beauty of the bride. It's the point of one of the weddings, right? Um, here, as we see this, it says the train of his robe filled the temple. This drawing our eyes to see that, or to help us understand that everybody should notice that the beauty of God is simply stunning. The beauty of God is simply stunning. Um, the meaning of the train filling the temple is to show us that the entire temple is filled with incomparable splendor. And it's all because of Christ. The fullness of God's splendor is on display in this throne room. The beauty of God is not something perhaps that we think on very much. We think about his authority. We think about his power. We think about a lot of things. But something maybe rarely that Christians think about is the beauty of God. But God is altogether beautiful. His beauty is absolutely stunning. And it is something that I think that we would do well to think on. I think it would actually enhance not just our corporate worship, but it would enhance our lifestyle worship as we go out to live lives. That we consider ourselves, as we consider that there's no being more beautiful in the entire world than God. He is all beautiful. His beauty is simply stunning. As a matter of fact, um, his beauty is unmatched in, in all the universe. There's nothing more beautiful than Christ. God's beauty is stunning. His train fills the temple. Then it says this in verse 2. This is pretty amazing. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Um, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So as we see this, this is going to show us that God is revered. God is revered. So we have this, this little term here called the seraphim. And no one knows what these, these six-winged creatures exactly are um, with feet and eyes uh, and unbelievable intelligence. They don't really appear in the Bible anywhere else under this same name, the seraphim. Ray Ortland says that the seraphim, the name seraphim in Hebrew, literally kind of translates out into the burning ones. The burning ones. And this means that they're like living flames or pure nuclear-powered praise. That's pretty awesome. I like that. That literally means living flames or pure nuclear-powered praise. I really like that. I mean, that's explosive praise right there. That's what these guys are doing at the throne room beside the Lord, literally all the time, screaming out, holy, holy, holy. It would be amazing to picture this, uh, gr- this great scene of power. And what this means is that they can't even look upon the Lord because they're covering their eyes and their feet and flying. Even they, they feel so unworthy to look upon him. Uh, 
as great and as awesome as these seraphim are, they're not even uh, filled with or tainted with human sin, even in their past or in forgiven like us. They still revere Christ in so much that they can't look upon him. An angel, think about, think about this. Um, when an angel appears to all of, when you read the narratives in, in the Gospels or whatever, when an angel appears, what do people do? They cower in fear. And what are these angels doing in the presence of God? Not even looking at him. So just imagine us before a holy God. That's how much more we should shudder and quake in the idea of his presence. Isaiah was ushered in. That's why you, when you look at John in Revelation 1, what does he do? He literally falls dead. Like I, Mo, Moses can only see the glimpses of the glory of the back of God, right? Um, so it's amazing when we think about this, this way, and this is just amazing. I love Tozer anyway. Um, named my first son after A.W., Aiden Wilson. So this is what he says. We must not think of God as the highest in ascending orders of being, starting with the single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man to the angel to the cherub of God and God being at the top. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. The gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf that separates God from the archangel is infinite. So God is not just like an ascending order and there's God. It's everything and then infinitely way up there is God. That's how much far and above he is when we say that God is revered. God is an absolute, we should be an absolute awe and reverence of God. So to summarize one through five, God is alive, God is authoritative, God is all-powerful, God's beauty is stunning, God is revered. And here we have this next. We want to make sure we feel this, right? So we have the seraphim, and it says in verse three, and one called to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What is God? He's holy, holy, holy. Not said for repetition, instead to emphasize all of his perfections. That's why it's said three times, to emphasize his perfections. The holiness of God carries us all the way to the brink uh, to experience the holiness of God and then beyond our ability to speak in human language. So this is what they say, right? Holy, holy, holy. And that's the best that they can do. Human language confines us to be able to talk about how holy he is. So all we can do is just say holy three times. And then that's, our language does no more than that. Language is finite. And so even language is hindered and limited to describe the infinite. And all that they can say is holy, holy, holy. Uh, Ortland says it takes unique linguistic contrivance uh, to convey meaning beyond its meaning as the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God is God alone. He's not like us. He's only bigger. He's, he's not like us, but only bigger and nicer. Instead, he's in an all different category. He's holy. That's all we can say. And that doesn't scratch the surface or come close to being able to really describe who God is. And so he's holy, holy, holy. And so as we talk about uh, how holy he is, anything that God is a part of is described holy. 
That's why there's holy ground and holy assemblies and holy Sabbaths and holy nations and holy garments and holy cities and holy promises and holy men and women who raise up their hands or holy scriptures or holy hands or a holy kiss or holy faith. Anything, as soon as it becomes attached to God, it becomes holy simply because of its attachment now to God. And so God is holy, 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 and all that he is bringing into him can therefore be associated with this. All that God does is good and holy, not because someone else says that it is holy, but precisely because God has done it. It's not like this category of goodness and holy above God that he's got to look at and make sure he ascribes to. Instead, he's above all things, and when he does things, it's therefore always good and holy because if something was above him, then that's God and not him. But since he's God, everything he does and says always is always good and holy precisely because he did it. He's always good, and he's always holy, which is unbelievable. So he is incomparable to anyone else in holiness. He is utterly unique in his divine essence. His holiness um, points us to the fact that since he is God, no one else else is like him and no one else will ever be like him. Not even close. He's holy, holy, holy. And then it says, after that, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't have time, but just consider with me how vast and expansive the universe is. I mean, we are on Earth, and there's nine planets in our solar system. And who knows how many solar systems there are? Who knows, right? Billions? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a science guy, so it's confusing to me. It's all confusing. But I know that if you think about Earth compared to everything else, we are very, 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 very minuscule in the universe's Galaxies, whatever, right? I don't even know the words, right? My point is, if heaven is filled with his glory, but he has so much glory that heaven can't contain his glory, and it spills over and starts filling up all the universe, the universe is pretty big. His glory must be unbelievably big that heaven can't contain it. And when it spills out out of heaven into everything, it fills everything. So when he says the whole earth is filled with your glory, this is just because they don't understand science like we do. The whole everything is filled with his glory. That's how unbelievably vast and big the glory of God is. So God is glorious. God is glorious. Everything about him is glory, and it's so unbelievably huge that everything is filled with his glory. This means that God's holiness has gone public. It's gone public. And now his glory is revealing to us the secrets of his holiness. And how do we most attain that? By seeing it in the scriptures. General revelation, creation, points us to the glories of God. Special revelation, his word, uniquely points us to the glories of Christ, specifically in the cross, the salvation being offered to us. And so we see the, the, the highest beauties of God's glory, specifically in the death, burial, and glorious resurrection of his son for us on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. So we see all this glory, and I have... I have I don't think, given you one point of application yet. I haven't said, so therefore do, right? Besides, read the Bible, be in all of his glory. 
be in awe of his majesty. I've just, I've hopefully thus far just tried to point you to see. And let's just see and feel and try to the best as we can be in awe of his glory. I did at the beginning. I said, so now you've got to do commission care for his glory. But you're like, what does that mean? It means see his glory, right? Now, here's what I want us to ask ourselves. So what do we do in light of God's glory? What do we do? This is what we do. And I'm, I'm, I'm staying in Isaiah. I'm not going anywhere else besides where we've been so far. I don't have to do anything else. What does it, ha- what does it say in verse 5? Um, verse 4 in the foundations uh, of the threshold shook and the voice of the one who called and the house was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's immediate response? Woe is me. I've seen the glory of God and the only thing that I can think is he is unbelievably and vastly different than me. I am a wretched, horrific sinner. And all I can think is, woe is me. And not only that, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what do we do in light of God's glory? One, declare your sinfulness before a holy God. This isn't a bad process. This isn't a terrible thing. This is a wonderful thing. Um, you probably heard it a thousand times. The bad news leads you to the good news. As we declare our wretched sinfulness before the holiness of God, then we understand the cross. And as we understand just how sinful we are, that's the whole point of Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. The woman that comes in and takes her hair and rubs it all over Jesus' feet. What's the end of he say? Who, he who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. When we realize all of us are the ones that we actually have been forgiven much, there is no such thing as us being forgiven the 50 denarii compared to the 500. It's a little story you tell Simon, right? All of us have actually been forgiven the 500. This is trying to tell Simon. And so the reason why, Simon, you don't love God is because you think you've just been loved, forgiven of a little bit. Actually, every single one of us are like this woman who's been a prostitute her entire life. We're all prostituting ourselves out for lesser glories. We've all been forgiven of 500 and the re- 500 denarii, which means all of us, when we realize just how sinful we are and we declare our sinfulness in light of a holy God, then we love much. The point. So this isn't a, a terrible exercise. This is a great exercise. The, I mean, this is true. Isaiah declares it. Romans 3, 10 and following tells it to us. We're all dreadful, wretched sinners. But in Christ, all of that has been forgiven because of his death on the cross. And now, what does Colossians 1 say? You're holy, pure, blameless, righteous in Christ. And so, as we declare our sinfulness before a holy God, it always leads us to repentance. And whenever we're led to repentance, that's not bad. It's good. Romans 2, 4. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. If you've been led to repentance, that's a great thing. God is expressing his kindness towards you. And then what does Isaiah see here? What happens when that, whenever this happens? Trust or declare your sinfulness before holy God. Then you have this, this atonement that happens to him, right? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal, they had taken from the tongs of the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Number two, trust in the atoning work for Jesus for you on the cross for your sin. 
Your sin is atoned for and your sin is taken away. When we declare ourselves as sinful, that moves us to trusting in the atoning work of Christ on the cross for us. And then he had, we receive just as Isaiah has this coal. He said, my mouth is dirty. And so that he cleanses his mouth. We are dirty. He cleanses us. That's the point here. And so we trust in that atoning work. We continually, whenever we, we feel dirty again, what do we do? We don't try harder to make ourselves clean again. That's impossible. We trust in the atoning work of Christ. All of sanctification is reminding yourself to trust in the atoning work of Christ. Philippians 3.16, one of my favorite verses, only let us hold true to what we have already attained, the perfections of Christ. So trust in the atoning work of Jesus for you on the cross. Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of all of his children's sins, and we continually trust in that. Now, I could stop, but I can't help but go to the next section. I can't help but go to the next session because... um, Forgiveness in Christ, seeing God's glory, being forgiven of Christ, should always lead us to mission. It should always lead us to say something to other people. And so, I think these next couple verses in Isaiah 6 are, are, are crucial, right? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? Well, you've forgiven me, but you know what? That was a good day's work for me. Uh, You can find someone else. I'm just going to sit over here and just be so thankful that I'm forgiven. Find someone else, Lord. That's not what happens. That's That's pretty silly, right? Forgiveness of sin, being counted righteous in Christ, should lead us to say, me, hear it, sign me up. That's what Isaiah, that's the whole point of the Great Commission, right? He tells, when we recite at the end of the church every service, it's reminding us of this situation. You've been forgiven. Other people need to hear the news. Let's go tell them. Number three. So what do we do in light of God's glory? Go make disciples. Go make disciples. Here's what he says. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, Here am I. Send me. I want to go. Is he going to do it perfectly? No. Are you going to do it perfectly? Am I going to do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Are we going to do it? Yes. Yes, we are. We're going to make disciples. Being forgiven should lead to mission. I can't find a place in the Bible where being forgiven, really being forgiven, doesn't lead to telling someone about what just happened. I can't find a place in the Bible. Therefore, This category that America finds itself in about being forgiven but never having told someone is not, it's not in the Bible. I was going to say it's not biblical, but it happens. So it clearly, but it's not in the Bible, right? You ask the Apostle Paul about this, he would say, how did that work? I don't understand. Um, So go make disciples. Go make disciples. Now, um, when he's told to go tell people, don't miss what God's going to tell him, right? He's, oh, you want to oh, sign up, Isaiah? Awesome. I'm going to give you the easy mission. That's not what he says, right? Okay, then this is what I want you to do. Go to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Well, that doesn't sound like a fun people to go talk to. I'm supposed to go tell people they're not going to listen? Yeah, that's your, that's your job for the rest of your life. Go get them. Now, the whole point is, 
When, when Christ tells us to fulfill the Great Commission, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But we should still go back to this kind of same mindset of Isaiah and say, here I am, send me anyway. It, the Great Commission is not a cakewalk. I mean, it's difficult. Telling people about Christ, uh, a lot of times they don't want to listen. That's okay. You still tell them. You still love them. You still endure. And it's not promised that every person you tell is going to just say, well, you know, I've been waiting for you. I've been praying for the Lord to send someone, and here you are. Tell me immediately how to receive Christ, and I will join you this afternoon on mission. That's not going to happen, right? Maybe it will, and if the Lord does that, that's awesome, and you need to tell me that story immediately. I want to hear that person. But, I mean, my point is, um, Isaiah did not have an easy mission, nor do we. It's not easy. It's the Great Commission. Even though it's difficult, it's still great. And so, what does seeing the glory of God lead us to do? Declare our sinfulness, trust in Christ's work, and go make disciples. And that's who the church is, and that's what the church does. And so, there's only one way we're ever going to truly fulfill this mission of the church. It's that, it's that if we're doing it, we're doing it for the glory of God. If we're doing it for lesser glories, pursuing the Great Commission will end in two months. We'll just give up. If we're doing it for the glory of God, we'll never stop. The glory of God is the fuel needed to always do the Great Commission. Any other fuel, you will quit. I will quit in two months. It just gets boring. It doesn't work. Eh, I don't want to do it for that anymore. Our own glory never satisfies. Christ's glory always provides the real, uh, long-lasting, persevering motivation to do it. Because the glory of God is never-ending. And so, therefore, pursuing everything for the glory of God um, is the only thing that will endure. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so your goal, day by day, is to seek to enjoy the glory of God today. Whether you are changing diapers, whether you are proclaiming the gospel, whether you are driving to work, whether you are dealing with your boss, whether you have a tough roommate or a difficult conversation with your spouse— or you're taking your kids to soccer, or whatever. Whatever it is you're doing today, I want to do all things for the glory of God today. And if the Lord allows, and he does, an opportunity for me to tell people about what he's done in my life, I want to take that, and I want to do it. So that means every day, let's seek to gaze at the glory of God in his scriptures, and as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do everything to the glory of God. Let's pray. Um, a treasure for us. It's sweeter than honey from the comb. It is a, a glorious present and promise that you've given to us that we can actually see your glory in your scriptures because you have been so kind to give them to us. Lord, we love you. And we are so thankful that you have um, sent your son to uh, make the way for us to be forgiven, to uh, die for us on the cross so that our sin can be forgiven. I pray for all of us that know you, who've trusted in you, confessed our sin, repented of our sin, and turned to you as our only hope. I pray that every day, though it's a struggle, would be a desire, a deep down desire to remember Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus, and that we would be glory gazers every day. 
glorying in the work of your son. Doing all things for your glory. And if anyone here doesn't know Christ, Lord, that you would illuminate their hearts to see the glory of Christ and save them this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.